All right, if we'll come back to our seats and open our Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, or if you just want to read along on the screen or you have a Bible app, whatever you need to see God's Word. It is our hope today. Obviously, not any word that, that I come up with is going to give you life, but we have the promise from God that in His words are life, that in Jesus, the one who was the Word became flesh, we have Life And so this morning, uh, if you follow along with us closely, you'll notice here that we're kind of skipping a set of verses. And that's because those are verses on wives submitting to husbands. And I'm just too afraid to preach on that. <laughs> so I'm waiting till my, I'm hoping my wife is in the nursery next week. And then we'll cover those. Oh, she is. All right. Uh, Hannah had a good idea that she could be washing my feet the whole time while I preach next week. Not. In all seriousness, though, uh, we will look at those, but uh, wanted to lay a foundation for understanding that text where it talks about how what the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives in marriage. So at the end of Ephesians, we'll connect to this again next week, but it gives us just this framework for understanding marriage in general. And it is so important, and often it gets left out of the conversation. This morning we'll have some overlap with last week as we're going to look at marriage and like we did sexuality and sex in view of the story of God. So there'll be some overlap, but this is so important. When we think about what it means to be men and women in our culture, whether that's single or whether that's married, this is an issue that the world is telling us an alternative story. This is, a, this is an issue in which we really can't meditate on enough and we can't think about enough what it means to be the people of God as male and female and husband and wife in a, in a culture that is telling us we can kind of define these things for ourselves. But as we define these things for ourselves, instead of finding life, we find destruction. And so Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, let's hear God's word. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would bless your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things. We pray that today you would help us to be humbled where we need to be humbled you would help us where we need to be helped and as we see our sin revealed that you would hold us how we need to be held in the security of the gospel and we pray this in Jesus name amen there's a show on tv at least a few years ago and I don't know if it's still on called bridezillas does anybody know would anybody in here admit it if you watch bridezillas regularly but anyway Who's heard of it? Let's see it. All right, yeah, we got some humble people here admitting this. So bridezillas, and we're also going to say there's groomzillas. Bridezillas are these ladies getting married, and they go crazy in planning their wedding. They go crazy in making it all about themselves. So here's some examples from bridezilla. I haven't watched it, not that I wouldn't, but I, I found these out. One bridezilla kicked out a bridesmaid of her wedding party because she was pregnant and would ruin all the pictures. One bridezilla made her bridesmaids all dye their hair brown 
so she could be the only blonde in the pictures. These are true stories. This same one charged $80 a guest for the dinner at the wedding. One said, I had a friend, this is about one, I had a friend who threw a temper tantrum complete with screaming and foot stomping. You're not going to believe this. Because her grandmother had the audacity to die a few hours before her wedding. How dare she ruin my wedding? She said, in case you all have forgotten, this weekend is about me. And here's a Groomzilla one. He insisted on walking down the aisle dressed as Superman. And that was Jason. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> so can you believe that anybody would make marriage all about themselves I mean could we really in here imagine that anybody in here that's married or anybody in here that's single and thinking about marriage or not thinking about marriage would, would make this all about them getting what they want having their needs met can any of us in here ever imagine that the thought would go through their heads hey have you not realized that this is all about me. You know, I can't imagine that because I am that person. I would never say that out loud, but there are many days, many moments where the story in my head of what it means to be married is this is really about me. And so if you have ever felt like that, and you're willing to share, if you've ever felt like that you have acted as if marriage is about you or you have a friend who has. How do we do that? What does that look like? What does it look like when your friend acts like marriage is all about them or getting married is all about them? When we, we think about this, we could go on all day, you know. I worked so hard and they weren't thankful. I need more appreciation around here. I need to be noticed. I need to be praised. Glorify me for my works. They didn't listen to me. Why won't they listen? You know? And if they're not going to listen to me, then they're going to pay. I'm going to do whatever it takes. You don't want to listen to me? I might not yell at you, but I can do give you the silent treatment all weekend long. We all have our ways of doing this. It's because we forget what marriage is really all about. We forget what Ephesians 5 is teaching us, that marriage is created by God. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing, and yet we enter it as broken people in a broken world full of sin, full of idolatry, turned in on worshiping ourselves, and turned in on finding someone who will worship us. Right? This is, if, we're not honest, if we're honest, many of us who are married or who are wanting to get married or dream about getting married, we're thinking, I can't wait to find that person who knows me and who gets me and who will basically worship the ground I walk on. I mean, we even use that phrase positively, right? Who worships the ground they walk on. The only problem is, is that none of us in here can find that person who will satisfy our hearts in the way that only Jesus can. And if we think that we will or we think that we or we're realizing we haven't, then there's no surprise at how disappointed, disillusioned that we find ourselves. Marriage is not just some man-made building block of society. 
Marriage is not just some way so that it makes your insurance plan easier because you can have somebody else on it. Marriage is not just a contract. The purpose of marriage we see through God's word and laid out so clearly in our text today. The purpose of marriage is to picture the gospel. The purpose of marriage is to show the world in embodied form what it means for the love of Jesus and his church. How do we see this? We're going to look at this through the story of God's word, but it's really what Paul's leading up to here in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, is that God has a purpose. When marriage was created in the beginning, God was not like the creators of the TV show Lost, and at some point along the way says, hey, what, how are we going to finish this thing? Right? If you've seen Lost, you know what I'm talking about. I don't think they had a clue what they were doing. It was really awesome about three or four seasons in, and then all of a sudden you just start making up stuff, right? And then they just end dying on a plane. Sorry for that side note. But right, we've seen things like this. Like, what happened? And sometimes I think we think marriage is like that. God just said, let there be marriage, right? And no real point, no greater purpose, but there is. And so in creation, we see in Genesis 2.18, we're going to walk, walk through some text here just real quick, is God creates man, creates, creates humanity, male and female, in his image. They are good. So he creates male and female. He gives them marriage, tells them to fill the earth and have dominion over it. And he says that it was very good in verse 31. But there was only one thing of all things that he said was not good. Genesis 2.18, before sin enters the world, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now what God was not saying here is that man was somehow incomplete in their relationship with him as if God was not enough to satisfy them. But what he was saying here in view of these, these animals all being coming and presented before Adam, in view of this call to, to fill the earth, and this call to, to have this companionship in which creation would be furthered, is that there was something not there. And so God calls them into a covenant relationship. Genesis 2.24, the same verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19, the same verse that Paul quotes here in Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is important. Why we're pointing this out is because you may come across people in your life, in this world, that tell you marriage is a man-made institution. I just want to stop. I don't want to assume anything anymore, to be honest with you. But let's just make it clear. Marriage is not a man-made institution. Is it a God-ordained institution? It is his pattern for his purposes according to his plan. And so we see as we go forward here that it's taking the place in this covenant language. So Genesis 2, 24, leave his father and hold fast, or old King James Version, leave and cleave. These were covenant words in the Old Testament of one ending a, a binding relationship with this unit and a new relationship with this one. So Proverbs 2.17, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So it's talking about immorality here within marriage is not just a forsaking of another person. It is stepping away from the covenant of God. And then Malachi 2.14, speaking to the same issue, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of her youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So marriage is not only created by God, it's not only his institution, it is a covenant relationship. It is not a contract. 
It's a covenant. Humanity will flow from it, flourish through it, and God will be glorified in it. But the story goes on. And this creation of this covenant institution is, is distorted in the fall. So we see the first marriage falls as Adam and Eve rebel against God together and it brings deep brokenness in their relationships. So if you're ever sitting back wondering, why is this so hard? Why, why is it so hard to, to think about marriage as a single? Why is it so hard to get married? Why is it so hard to be married? Why is it so hard to stay married? It's because of the fall. It's not just because you simply have bad communication skills. It's because sin is powerful. The curse of sin touches everything. The curse of sin dwells in us. The curse of sin plagues our marriages. Sin opens the door to all the things that plague us today. And so verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 3, the man says, as, Jesus, as God says, why did why'd you do this? Why did you rebel? The, the man says, the woman you gave me, she, it's her fault, right? Men, we're still doing that today, right? Why are you so angry? Why are you so detached in your marriage? Why are you so distant? Well, it's her fault. If she'd get it together, I'd be all right. And implicitly, who are we blaming in that? We're blaming God, right? If you wouldn't have gave me this wife, and it works the other way too, women, right? Why am I this way? It's his fault. We're saying, God, hey, you stuck me with this bum. Why are you acting surprised? So the woman says, what's this you've done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me. So there's this blame. We all know when our marriage is right, we love to play the blame game. If it wasn't the spouse that made us do it, it's the devil that made us do it. We don't look into our own hearts. So the same problems that plague us, the same problems that is in our text today, Paul will say, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In Genesis 3.16, the consequences of the fall, this curse of sin that comes upon marriage, we see part of this takes place. In Genesis 3.16, the second part, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It really mirrors what we see here is that now in our relationships, in our marriage relationships, is that there's going to be this struggle to respect. So there'll be disrespect. But then there'll also be this struggle for the man to disregard or to seek to domineer or dominate. Still the battle in our hearts today. It flows from this. This is why our marriage is spiritual warfare. A lot of times we forget what's going to come in Ephesians chapter 6 is going to be the, the epic passage in Scripture on spiritual warfare. There's no, it's no coincidence it follows the, the teaching on what happens in the home, in our marriage, with our children. It's because we're not merely trying to figure out how to get along with this person. We are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil to glorify God. But the first marriage is given a promise. As we go forward here, we see the promise in marriage that even in the middle of this laying out of the curse of sin and how it affects our marriage, there's hope. 
Genesis 3.15, God says in this really first promise in the Bible of the coming redemption, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That in the middle of everything being broken, God gives this promise that a son will be born one day who will defeat this one who brought sin to before humanity and led brokenness into this world. And we even have this picture of how God will do it. In Genesis 3.21, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the first sacrifice in the Bible. As God kills these animals, takes their skins, and clothes humanity in their nakedness, brokenness, sin, and shame. So that they can continue to live together in a relationship as messed up as it is. That they don't have to live together under that guilt, shame, and fear. But they can live together under the covering and protection that God gives. So it's pointing us forward here. As this story of marriage continues. As we see all throughout the Bible that, is a, that God wants us to see his love for us. And the way that we love one another in marriage. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He speaks this not to an Israel who is perfect and who is faithful, but an Israel who is in exile because of their sin. Just as Adam was exiled and Eve was exiled from the garden because of their sin, so Israel has been exiled, but yet God is faithful. He is pursuing. He is persevering for his people. And then the day of redemption arrives. And so we see redemption in marriage. In John 3, 28 through 29, John the Baptist says these words, You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What is John saying here? He's saying the long-awaited groom who would bring restoration to God's people, this broken, unfaithful, rebellious bride has come in Jesus. The one who comes to take us for himself. The one who pursues us. The one who provides for us. The one who protects us. The one who perseveres us. And the one who gives us a greater covering than God gave Adam and Eve as they exited Eden. The one who now gives us imperfect spouses. An imperfect people. A perfect spouse. That we can rest in. When we're imperfect. And when our spouses are imperfect. He comes as it were. And gives us the kiss of life. And the death of our sin. Sleep in beauty. I haven't seen it in a long time. But there she lies. Dead or asleep. And here comes. Prince Philip. I'm getting these names right. I can't believe it. And he comes up to Aurora, Sleeping Beauty. And he leans over and gives her the kiss that brings her back to life. He's defeated the dragon, the evil Maleficent. He's cut through the thorns. 
and he brought his bride to himself. This is what Jesus has done for every one of us in here. Single, married, all of the above. If you are in Christ, he has pursued you to give you the life that you were meant to have as his. And so Paul says, this is how we should love one another, as Christ loved the church. And so he writes in our text today that this mystery is revealed. This mystery is profound. In Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, that from start to finish, click on to the next one here, Chris. This was all about Jesus. Marriage is all about the relationship of Christ to his church. Some days you may get caught up in that mystery. Why in the world would God create this? It's to picture the love that he has for his people. A love that will one day be consummated. We read in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The story of God begins with a marriage in the garden, and the story of God will end with this great marriage supper of the Lamb. Last night, we watched a movie. Again, I never give recommendations. I'm just saying we're watching. The Sixth Sense. I haven't watched that in a long time. And you know, I've never, it's the first time I watched it for the second time. If that makes sense. Or watched it again. Now, if you've ever seen this movie, again, I'm not recommending it. But it's pretty, it's pretty cool the way it ends. So it's about this little boy who's getting counseled by this ch child psychologist. And this little boy sees dead people. So it's a thriller. It's kind of scary. That's why I'm not recommending it. But at the end of the movie, you find out the child psychologist who was counseling, oh, spoiler alert, big time, big time, who was <laughs> the child psychologist who was counseling the, the child, he's dead the whole movie. And you're just like, how could this be? I saw him interacting with all these people all along in the movie. But last night, watching it again for the second time after many years, is it's like, it's so obvious. He never talks to anybody in the whole movie but the kid. But I trust me, you will be faked out, or you would have been faked out. <laughs> this, is, this is what... It's saying about a mystery revealed. Not that it's hard to understand. Not that it's confusing. Not that it doesn't make sense. But that it was all about this. And it's now the secret is an open secret. And now when you go back and read through the Bible. And you read about all of these relationships. And all of these things. Now you start to see what you didn't see before. And what God is asking us to do is not just to read our Bibles in light of this mystery revealed, though we should, but to read our marriages and our relationships in light of this mystery revealed. To go back in your minds to this past week 
wives when your husband didn't pursue you and cherish you and to think about how you responded and to ask yourself, did I respond in light of the fact that my marriage is all about the glory of Christ? Husbands, to think back on your week when your wife didn't seem to respect you or affirm you and to think about how you responded and to ask yourself, did I respond in such a way that shows the glory of Christ? To imagine what next week could look like. Because you're going to have these moments. right? This Ephesians 5, 31 through 33 is so relevant. right? We're all still right here, husbands and wives. wives well, all of you are saying, I want my husband to know me more, to pursue me more, to cherish me more, to just want to be with me more. And husbands, you're all saying in here, I want to be respected. I want to be affirmed. I want to, be, I want to feel that I am the man that deep down inside I wonder if I am. And God is inviting us to lay all of these good desires that can become ultimate demands. Idols. At the feet of Jesus. You see, we need more than a few communication tips. We need purpose. We need wisdom. And so if all of creation and all of our marriages are a story for his glory, it's not our movies, it's not our dream, it's his dream, it's his story, then what can that look like? Here's some practical things that we want to take away today. Three things. If it's his story for his glory, then number one, we'll try to hit these quickly, He's the writer of the story. Number two, he's the director of the story. And number three, he's the star of the story. So the first thing here, if we, if we get that, if you're tracking with me, I don't like that phrase. Some pastor says that, and I've made fun of it. And so I say, so if you're hanging with me here, this is, this is important. You just don't want to walk out saying, oh, I understand marriage is all about Jesus in the church. It's a good foundation. Take this with you as you think about entering it if you're single one day or not entering it or as a married person. He is the writer. What does that mean? His script, his word must set the standard. So what Paul's referring to, where's Paul getting his theology or doctrine of marriage? From Genesis. Where's Jesus get it from? Genesis. The Bible. That's where they're going. If Paul and Jesus are going to the Bible to define marriage, then we're in good company if we go there. Cassie and I, when we first got married, one of our biggest fights was over playing Monopoly. Can you imagine that two people could get in a fight over playing Monopoly? And you know why we got in a, somebody said yes, but anyway. Uh, you know why we got in a fight over Monopoly? It's because we were playing by different rules. Now, what do I mean? You may think, well, there's only one way to play Monopoly. No, depending on the family that you come from, there's different ways to play Monopoly. And my family played it the right way, of course. And... <laughs> The way you play it is you play it to the finish, right? You get to the end. And Cassie had this weird idea that you just set a time limit because you don't want to play all night long. Well, what's the point in that, right? That takes out all the long strategy of it. And you see, we, were play we thought we were playing the same game, and we were playing the same game, but we both had an unspoken rule book that we were playing by. 
We had a way of playing Monopoly that we had learned in our families of origin that we did not realize was, cause, was going to cause a big fight over a silly game. And all of you in here have those rules that you may not even be aware of yet. What it looks like to have emotions. What it looks like to spend quality time together. What a Saturday looks like. How often the husband's supposed to wash the car. How often the wife's supposed to do the laundry. You're all bringing this stuff in with you. What it looks like to be parents. What it looks like to be friends. What it looks like to watch TV. We've got to figure out what, what, what's the unwritten rule book we're playing by here. But then we need to realize that doesn't mean that we just sit down and say, well, you get one, I get one. Is we have to go to God's word. And we have to say, what are the principles here? What are the teachings here? And how do they influence how we do these things? If it's something as simple as monopoly, we figure out what does it mean for me as a husband to sacrifice and love her and not be a jerk because I might lose if we only play for an hour. We have to have the foundation of God's word and not a fluttery heart foundation. I've did a lot of marriage counseling over my years, and I've seen grown men and women into their 50s and 60s find somebody else, and then they begin to talk like a teenager. Well, I know what God's word says, but my wife just never loved me that way, and this person makes me feel special. If you're in here and you think you're immune to that, then you're already one step towards deception. Only the script of God's word will hold us in times like these. It's what his word teaches us. We've got to agree on it. It's like the sometimes I get the buttons on my shirt wrong. Right? I do. You know what? If you get the first one wrong, the rest are wrong. It's the same when it comes to your relationships and your marriage. If you don't get this right, that no matter how we feel, no matter what happens, God is the authority in this relationship. His word is what defines it. Then everything else is going to get off. Because we change, the world changes, but God's word doesn't change. But also he is the director. You want a healthy marriage that follows the story of Christ. Not only is the writer, he's the director. What does that mean is that his purposes are supreme. So stories about bad directors, right? If you're an actor, is that, is that they... They're just telling you what to do, abusing you, abusing you to get their mission done. Well, that's often how we act as spouses, right? This is, this is about me. I'm calling the shots here. Maybe I do that aggressively. Maybe I do that manipulatively. But a healthy marriage built on the gospel says God is the director. His purposes are supreme. Paul here in Ephesians 5 is saying, the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Christ must lead our relationships. When Josiah was younger, I would build blocks with him, build towers. And it was cute at the time, but he would criticize my block building. Can you believe it? It was as if, even though he was three or four years old, that I was only there to be his assistant. And that's how many of us 
can view our marriages. Jesus, this is about me, but I'm very happy with you assisting me in my marriage. That's what some of us want, if we're honest. We don't want Jesus to be Lord of our marriage. We want Jesus to help us with our marriage. To be our temporary therapist so we can get back to life with us at the center of everything and okay. You know, Jesus, if you could come help me just fix all this mess, then I could get back to life with me at the center. But Jesus is not in the business of being a supporter of our idolatries. He's in the business of freeing us from them. Some of us are in a me marriage. But when God brought you together, he did not bring you together to give you superficial happiness. He brought you together to give you holiness. If you're like, man, my dreams have not come true, then you need to ask yourself, well, whose dream was this marriage built on anyway? Marriage is first of all about our growth in Christ and nothing. Well, other things do, many other things do, but it's a big one that will reveal your selfishness like you didn't realize and will reveal your need of grace. So he's got to be the writer, the director, but lastly, Jesus has to be the star. Have you ever known anyone that was in on the local news? Maybe it was you and you're like, I'm calling all my friends up tonight because I've got a two-second cameo on Channel 9. Right? Life is good. I finally made it. Or even more so, I had a friend one time who was like an extra in a movie. And so we had to go watch this movie, and the whole movie was centered around on him like doing this in the background on the street. Right? Rewind it, right? Did you see me? That's what the whole movie was about for him. That's how we live our lives sometimes, and we live our marriages. Marriage is not about us primarily. It's about Jesus. It's about displaying and proclaiming the gospel, but we're all about us. And we think that actually makes the movie better. We think it actually will bring us more joy if we're at the center if you've ever had to watch a movie with somebody that's doing that, it doesn't make the movie better. Except for the self-deceived person who actually thinks they're the star. So We're called to picture the gospel in our marriage. I'm not going to give you a list of steps right now, but just to ask yourself in every situation, every tension, whether you're reacting to something or whether you're planning something, is to ask yourself, how does the gospel inform this? How does the gospel speak to this? When I was in seminary, sad to say, even that late in life, one of my friends said that to me. He said, I've been meditating on how the gospel informs my marriage. And I just honestly looked at him and said, I don't even, what does that mean? I said that in my head. I didn't say it out loud. Probably out loud I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. But inside I was like, I don't know what that means. What do you mean the gospel applies to my marriage? It does in every way. When we make our first commitment, just as Jesus makes a covenant with us, we covenant with someone. Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm just going to date you forever. 
because one day I might really realize you're no good for me and then I'll leave you. We think of forgiveness. Why would we forgive someone? Why would we forgive somebody a million times? How many times has Jesus forgiven us? How many times has he absorbed the debt that we owe? We think of hope. Sometimes our marriages feel like they're going to fall apart. They're hanging on by a thread. What would give us hope? It's because Jesus is the one who has risen from the dead. And if the dead can raise, so can our dead marriages. We think of grace. We didn't deserve God's love, yet he gives it. And when our spouses don't deserve our love, if we don't have a doctrine of grace that we've received, we'll never have a doctrine of grace that we can give. We think of joy, that Jesus was faithful for the joy set before him, but it wasn't on a bed of roses, it was through a cross. We think of sacrifice. There's no exception in your marriage to where the gospel isn't relevant to how you respond and love one another. So picture it, protect it, and lastly, pursue it. Do you realize that your marriage is a part of God's mission? We're a church that talks a lot about being missional, a lot about displaying and declaring Christ. Maybe you, husband and wife, have not realized the fact that you're, you've not just been called to tolerate each other and survive, even though that sounds like the best you can do maybe some days. You're actually called, you're, you're God's evangelism program. You're part of it as a part of the church. It's the way that you love one another is showing the world a picture of the gospel. Now, some of you right now just felt like, a, like I just dropped a whole bottle of condemnation on your head. But this, again, is where you, you hear the gospel. Is that it's not about pointing people to you and saying, wow, you want to see what love is really all about, what grace is really all about, what sacrifice is really all about. Look at me. Watch my movie. No, it's that sometimes through your imperfections, through your sins, through your failures to do all these things, then you get to actually point other people to the perfect spouse, to the perfect Savior. But whether in the good days or the bad days, if you don't own the fact that your marriage is a part of the mission of God, then you will miss these opportunities. To have the humility to share your story with others. Nothing more aggravated than a bunch of Christians who act like their marriages are perfect. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? Nobody wants to hear that. That's why, honestly, there's probably people not even here this morning. Right? Because their marriages are falling apart, and they don't want to walk into a room where it looks like there's a bunch of self-righteous people who all just love each other all the time. I've heard people actually say that. But if we tell our stories with Jesus as the hero, it is a powerful witness to the world. Tim Keller says this, we must say to ourselves something like this, well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us and what did he see? He saw us denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, what did Jesus do? He stayed. 
He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but he loved us to make us lovely. So we need to say, that's why I'm going to love my spouse. We speak to our hearts like that, and then we fulfill the vows that we give because it's not about us. Marriage is the picture, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much that you have provided us covering in Christ because we are imperfect people, imperfect singles, imperfect spouses. We thank you, God, that we don't have to earn our status and identity before you through our performance, but through the finished work of Christ. We ask forgiveness for the ways that we have seeking to write our own scripts, to direct our own show, and to be the star. But we thank you that because of Jesus, we are forgiven. And as we come now to the Lord's table, God, you again remind us of the hope that we have the finished work of Christ through the ongoing work of the spirit in us through him in whose name we pray amen